Welcome to Inside the Firm, a podcast dedicated to small business owners and hosted by entrepreneurs, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. Each week, they take you on their journey of how to start, run, and grow a business by bringing you inside their architecture and real estate development firm. Get a behind-the-scenes tour of how these business leaders manage their clients and foster company culture while creating new and innovative projects. And now your host, Alex Gore and Lance Psycho. This episode was brought to you by ArcCat. As design and architecture demand increases toward pre-pandemic levels and beyond, how are you and your firm keeping up? ArcCat is here to help. ArcCat.com offers several free tools to help architecture and design firms like yours get work done faster. Use ArcCat's powerful search engine to find the right products for your projects and download BIM, CAD, and specifications right there on the same page without needing to pay or register. ArcCat.com also offers product videos, catalogs, green reports, product certification information, outline, and short-form specification generation, and more. ArcCat.com is your one-stop solution to help increase your productivity and get more projects done. That's ArcCat.com, A-R-C-A-T.com. Check those guys out and start building better content today. This episode was also brought to you by Pella Luxury. Pella Luxury, you have never experienced a brand like this before. The collection of brands within the luxury division of Pella are the conversation starters, the pioneers of the industry who provide window and door solutions to discerning architects, the building industry, and beyond. They have decades of experience creating things no one else in the world is creating, and the collection of brands are brought together to complement and build on one another. They don't push beyond the limits, they set them. Explore PellaLuxury.com forward slash The Firm. That's PellaLuxury.com forward slash The Firm today. Let's get into the show. Hello, Lance Psycho. What is up, my friend? Everything is up. Uh, prices are up. How about that? Uh, business is up. <laughs> yeah. So that's good. So a lot of positivity on our end uh, as we were kind of shooting the breeze before we started uh, the show um, that's kind of where we're at suffocating with work, but the opposite is always, uh, should be kept in the rear view mirror. So you are at least grateful for all of the work that you, that you hopefully have. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And for those people that are regular inside the firm listeners, you'll notice a new voice here. I am Adam Steiner. I am permanently taking over for Alex Gore on the podcast. Ah, no, no, the I real can't. host. Finally, <laughs> a good one. I kid. No, um, Alex had something come up, but we're doing, uh, yeah, just a little crossover show today. So this will be posted on both of our shows. If you're not watching live, um, inside the firm and builder versus buyer, we're going to talk some stuff on the home building industry, but we're also going to talk a little bit about our, our firms and getting into the industry and all sorts of stuff. So the floor is kind of open today. We're just going to have some fun and let her rip. Um, yeah, so let's, let's dive into it. Um, Actually, let's start on how to get into this industry because I get this question a lot, um, especially from like younger people. And they're, um, but the question specifically is: I'm an architect in Indiana looking to get into residential architecture slash building. My fam- my familiarity in the building process is limited to my experience as an architect working on commercial projects mm. during the construction administration phase. I'm passionate about getting into residential architecture and want to have more intimate role in the building process 
with clients, but don't know what I don't know when it comes to this industry. Any tips for me? I think one of the first things you could do is, uh, especially if, if it's if it's this person's if they're they're going off on their own sort of thing, or even if they're moonlighting and have have uh, permission to do that, is to see if you can network with um, some builders and developers. And I think there's a couple different ways you can do that. Uh, cold calling still works, and um, and then just passing on any kind of design work uh, that you have that is even remotely relatable. Uh, I don't think the transition from commercial to residential is uh, out of anybody's reach. They are different animals for sure. I, I, I think um, I've heard from a lot of other colleagues that do primarily residential and institu- or sorry, primarily commercial and institutional. They kind of look down on residential architects, and I kind of uh, do the opposite to them uh, because uh, my my opinion is about residential architecture is. Uh, counter to theirs, which theirs is, well, we are, we are affecting the public, um, in a much bigger and broader way than you guys are. But I think the fact of the matter is, well, you, you live in your house, like you, you live in that house every single day. You're going to be in the house much more often than you are a commercial space. So maybe there's an argument there that it's more important, but I digress. So back to networking, uh, sending out just a list of rates, I think to developers, contractors, stuff like that is not a bad idea. And also your availability. If one advantage I think you might have over somebody else who is already doing residential and has like, let's say a folder like ours where there's potentially 150 to 200 active projects at one time is I'm having to tell people that we can't start their project for a month, two months, three months. A lot of people are okay with that. Some people are not. But if you are have a clean slate and you have not, you, have, you don't have any work but just by you telling them and being available almost immediately might get you that that work and that those jobs. Oh um, yeah, yeah. So you know, going around and then if you wanted to do in person, I would just have a sell sheet. And what I would have on that sell sheet, in addition to maybe a couple couple example projects, again, even if they're commercial, just be completely upfront with them and tell them that hey, I, I don't have any residential experience, but I am a licensed architect or unlicensed. It doesn't really matter, but I have this experience drawing up these other buildings and I would be happy to, uh, I, I would be interested in, in possibly taking on some of your residential work. If you guys have overflow work, um, there's a lot like that that can happen. Then the other, the other one that maybe some people don't think about, which I think is still a very good idea is if, if you get in touch with some other architects who are doing just residential work and you, you offer your, your services up to them on a contractual basis. Uh, so they don't have to hire you as an employee with all the extra taxes and uh, overhead that they incur. Um, we have such a shortage right now and such a, of, of people being able to provide those services residential wise. And we have such a labor shortage uh, that, and, and, and a, this, this giant um, bevy of work, that is available because we're in a residential boom right now because people are for various reasons, right? They're moving from the coast inward, um, stuff like that out of the big cities. And, uh, and then people are refinancing because with low interest rates and pulling out all kinds of equity and then doing their projects with cash, there's a huge opportunity there. So I, I would just not be afraid to pick up the phone, go pound the pavement a little bit and offer yourself up. I think you would, you wouldn't have any trouble if you're somewhat of a decent salesperson getting work in the residential world uh, pretty easily. Yeah, I I would agree. I think getting residential work right now is a little bit like shooting fish in a barrel. There's just mm-hmm. not enough 
mm-hmm. um, people drawing to really get stuff done. One thing I'd add too is in talking to builders and other architects that are working in residential, just offer up drafting. Hey, I'll be the guy that takes the red lines. Um, yeah. And you know, that's not fun work. Nobody's putting that on Instagram, but um, it one pays the bills and you're going to learn a ton. Um, they're going to send you all their CAD files. They're going to, or Revit files, you know, whatever they're working mm-hmm. in. Um, and you'll just get to see and dissect that. If you ask questions, they'll probably be nice and answer them. Like there's just a, a lot learning, a lot of learning you can do in that. Um, and then advertising wise, one thing I, I just thought of this is I don't, there's no reason why you couldn't start advertising on a place like Thumbtack. Uh, yeah. I, I, we've used Thumbtack in the past. We actually haven't advertised on Thumbtack for about six months now, just because we don't have any, I, we don't want to hire, we don't want to hire and expand anybody, our firm any bigger until maybe next May in 2022. Uh, we only try to do like one person per year. Cause it's a lot to, tr- it's a lot of investment, uh, money, time, everything, effort, patience to train somebody. So if you are comfortable just getting a Thumbtack listing up, uh, then, you know, then I would probably refer you back to one of our episodes. I, I think it was, if you just search inside the firm podcast, Thumbtack, uh, we walk everybody through the best ways to m- use that platform to get work for yourself. Uh, so don't discount that either. I think just like Adam was saying, there's, there's, it's like shooting fish in the barrel right now. Um, I don't think you're going to have much trouble finding work. And, and then if you, then let's say you do get the work, I think, Getting the work, honestly, seems like the easiest part to me. The hardest part is for somebody like you who's coming from commercial to residential is uh, understanding what it takes to get through a residential project from the beginning all the way to permit and then working with the clients. And it's a whole, it's a different animal, like I said. Uh, maybe if you can identify a mentor, if you can identify mm-hmm. if somebody is willing to help out another architect or designer and mentor you a little bit about best practices with residential, I, th- I think you're off to the races. Yeah, totally. I I think to really work on g- inserting yourself in the feedback loop is really, really crucial too. Mm-hmm. So I spent most of my career as like a lead designer for a home builder. And, and now that I'm in my own firm, I'm so far from that feedback loop because I think, mm. you know, I've been doing this, my, I've do, been doing my new firm about two years now. And I know I don't have the perfect drawing set that goes to the field every time. I think what happens is most builders say, why call the drafter architect? Let's just fix it now, Mm. move on and not worry about it. Not wait two weeks to get an updated drawing. By that point, it's not even worth it. Right. But when I worked for a builder, all the site superintendents knew exactly where my desk was and they would come (laughs) into the office and say, Hey, don't ever effing draw it like this again, because this doesn't work. Um, and so if you are doing your own firm, you need to go out of your way to get in touch. If you can go all the way down to the labor level or um, the trade partner, whoever mm-hmm. the HVAC, HVAC installer, electrician, framer, get in front of those people. I think that's huge, but also get in front of the builder. Say, okay, what did and didn't work about my plan? What can I do to get better? Like you need to do that um, to really build a sustainable business. Yeah, rip off the Band-Aid and just take it. Just take it. I, I know it's going to be painful and that's scary to uh, just, it's a scary thought to even digest, but it is 100% crucial that you that you close that feedback loop. I just could not agree more. So whatever it takes to get there, you're just going to improve yourself uh, 100%. And, and I think it's going to build a level of trust too with these builders that maybe you've earned the business from. 
uh, that you're not going to be this uh, black spectacle kind of architect or designer that thinks your plans are perfect and uh, it's the it's uh, you're not blaming you know quote unquote the idiots in the field and they're not they are out there making everything happen risking their lives every day because construction is one of the most uh, dangerous industries there is to work in uh, it's just going to secure a lot of stuff for you and then then after then if you can do that and you've you've done it for a year or two man hopefully the referrals start coming back in. And then you're done advertising, you're done pounding the payment and all of those things. And for us, it took about a decade to really get those referrals to come in consistently. And that's probably why we haven't advertised for so long now. Uh, but man, those kind of referrals from a builder, then then all of a sudden you're probably looking at maybe even raising fees or, or charging a premium for your services because hopefully you are either shortlisted down to maybe three architects that the builder is referring the client to or just one. And that's one of the uh, things that we've experienced as of late is... Uh, for instance, this, this uh, we referred to this uh, wealthy client in Boulder, wants to do a custom house, and he said, I'm not even looking at another architect. Um, we talked about fees right away, and he goes, that's, that's reasonable. Let's just make this happen. Yeah, that's, it's, a, it's a really, really great place to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got one place. builder. Yeah, I've got one builder now, high-end custom builder in our area, and you know, I'm the only call. If they that's get awesome. a client that doesn't have an architect attached, like I'm there, first meeting, and it's you know, it's really, really great for my business to not have to be part of that sales discussion loop. You just save so much time in that. Mm-hmm. Um, what have you guys learned? Uh, so, I mean, your foray into building your own projects isn't really new at this point. But looking back, what have you been doing for about two, three years now? You've been building your own projects. Is that right? We, the first, about six technically because wow. of okay. the first tiny house that we built. Oh, that's right. Yeah. Um, yeah. 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 But, uh, that those are anarchy builds. They don't need, I love them because they're anarchy builds. You don't need a building permit for them. You obviously do things at a very high, I, I think you actually end up doing things at a higher level of precision engineering wise, um, architectural wise with those kind of builds. But yeah, that was our first two builds were uh, the, the tiny house we built for ourselves and eventually sold it. And and then the second t- set of tiny houses for Subaru. Um, and then the first license work that we did as a class B general contractor was our development. Then there were a couple little ones, little residential remodels, little commercial fixes that we ended up having to do for people, ADUs, that sort of thing. And as most recently, uh, I'm, I just I actually came back from one of my job sites it is a 4,000 square foot interior commercial tenant finish uh, in downtown Longmont, uh, Colorado. We're very excited about it. Um, so, and then Alex is uh, building another tiny house, another anarchy build for a actually another architect out in California. And then next week we start framing a house. Uh, so we're going to send our construction crew out to frame a custom house that we designed. The owner actually ended up taking our architects to builder course, so architectsguide2.com, if anybody wants to check that out. Shameless plug. And then <laughs> and then uh, uh, Alex will be building a very large, um, gosh, I think it's about, it's almost 13,000 square feet. It's very, very, very big. Uh, super modern uh, house. It'll be the biggest, um, it'll be the biggest budget project construction-wise that we've taken on, even bigger than our development, believe it or not, about twice wow. the size. It's just one house, and that'll tax Al for about a year, year and a half. Uh, that kind of rounds out. And then we have a few remodels here and there that we we still do little remodels, like a bathroom remodel or uh, several bathroom remodels, interior stuff for residential clients. Uh, it's filler work just to keep yeah. the crew so there's always some backup stuff. 
for yeah. them to do. That's smart. Do you, do you find you're building most of your own projects, your architectural projects? No, not even close. A very, very okay. small fraction. Yep. And even with that very small fraction, you know, upstairs, just before I got back down here to podcast with you, staff was kind of, they scoffed. And when I, when I, Alex and I said, yeah, we're 18 months out. And I go, no, no, that's real guys. Like we don't, we can't, if somebody wanted to build a new house with us, we couldn't touch it for 18 months. And wow. that's even with just only a small fraction of, of the, of the house, of the projects that we're flipping into architectural projects that we're flipping into construction projects. I think, I think I mentioned earlier on the show, you know, we typically have between 150 and 200 projects active, uh, commercial, residential, doesn't matter in the, in the, in the, in the, uh, firm, we have a staff of 10, there's an average of about 10 projects each person is kind of working on. So if you, if you take, you know, what is that? Uh, two, two, let's just call it three divided by 150. Oops, I did times. I don't know. It's a very small fraction of what, uh, of what yeah. our architecture projects are through, what is it exactly? 2%. So okay. 2%, yep, is all it's really taken us to keep this construction arm going and profitable. Interesting. Man, yeah. That's a lot of projects to handle. It is. Well, that the, the Revit template works, right? RevitRockShip.com. Yeah. If you want to get your firm up to that level and uh, make people super productive. What I think, what I think the building information modeling through Revit does, or Archicad, I can't, I've never used Archicad, but I hear it's very similar and very good in that respect is, it really turns a one man or one woman or, or person or whatever firm into uh, being able to do, I think, the work of it from two, from two to four people. Like wow. that's, how, that's how powerful I think it, it makes you. Um, because you know, you're drawing a wall and plan view and it's extruding it in elevation view it's already kind of creating your elevations for you. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, finally have gotten, um, I've got a buddy who I'm working with some who's doing, um, the construction docs for me on some and he's doing it all in Revit. And I even transitioned one of his projects into like a full VR 3d walkthrough for a client. Um, we did it all with Enscape. I know you guys, you guys use Enscape too, right? Yep. Um, yeah. So full VR walkthrough is, this monster house and he's walking through every nook and cranny. It's just really, really cool. There's a lot <laughs> that you could do nowadays, which I'm sure most of your audience is pretty familiar with that. But um, yeah, back to building. Uh, so transitioning here a little bit on budgeting. Personally, I feel like I don't really want to take anybody's money to design them a project they can't afford to build. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't know that there's anything ethically wrong if they're the ones directing you to it and they they direct them themselves to a house and, that they can't right. afford. And, and, and if you and if you've kind of uh, laid out that for them in the sense, like if, if you preface them with, "Hey, here's how much I think it's going to cost to build this thing. You're already at the square footage. Are you comfortable with that?" And they say, "Keep proceeding." Well, then exactly. Like, what else are you supposed to do? Yeah. Right. 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 Um, but how do you get to? How do you get to the point where you're pretty confident in what that budget range is? Because they usually have an idea, mm. um, but it's it's really hard, especially with the pandemic and everything. Like prices on everything have drastically shifted in these last two years. Yeah, um, it's really like most builders I know have a hard time <laughs> quoting pricing now because stuff is shifting on them so much. What what strategies are you guys doing to like dial that in? We have a so um, I think one of the the way our 
spreadsheet works for doing preliminary bids is uh, was based on percentages. So what you would do is what I would do is I would concrete has stayed generally within range of where it was before pre-pandemic. Um, down here in Colorado, for instance, it costs us about $700 a cubic yard to place, pour, labor included, concrete, all said and done for a foundation. Uh, out of my Revit model, I could take, uh, pull that, extract that data, uh, times the cubic yardage by uh, 700, and then all of a sudden I have a number that I can play with I can plug that number into my spreadsheet, and I, I have it set up so then it that it um, based on that based on that number. Um, there's another calculation that I do. It's like the reverse. Basically, uh, foundations for us used to be about 13% of the of the construction budget. There's a formula that I can never remember that I but I know it exists because of college that you could uh, if you knew the percentage of some figure, then you you could do some some quick math. And it would spit out the final, the bigger number, right? Then once I plug that bigger number in, based on the percentages of what everything should cost relative to that big number, right? Electri electrical, framing, all of that stuff, I could get within budget. Once that all happens, um, then, then there's this cross check of, okay, here's your preliminary budget. I think we're close, plus or minus 20, 20, 20 to 30%. I used to maybe say 10%. <laughs> then inflation hit, and then there's been a uh, a, a cross check, like reverse engineering the numbers. Once they the hard bids start coming in, and seeing where the people are landing price per square foot. So what we used to tell folks is you're probably I think it's a good budget number for you to start at two hundred and fifty dollars per square foot of finished space, and now that number based on that feedback loop that we've created in-house, we're probably at about $300 a square wow. foot. So let's say you get the work, going back to where we started this podcast, let's say you get the work from one of these builders, one of these developers, and you have a client and they say, here's my budget. I think, again, you got to go back, like you were saying, Adam, back to the builder and ask them if they have just some square footage numbers that you can start thinking about and presenting to the client based on the metrics of what they're seeing at the day, right? Hopefully they'll be able they'll be able to tell you, oh yeah, we're budgeting now 250, 350, 400, whatever dollars per square foot and and corralling people that way. And the biggest way everybody no matter how many times you tell folks and maybe you experience this too Adam is is they say, well, um, how can we save money? You need to shrink your project. Like there's no other way than truly than shrinking the size of the project. You have to shrink the square footage. We have to make this a smaller building because there is some return on efficiencies. And like when we get into these group homes that we design, these ADA compliant group homes, and they're up to 8,000 square feet. Yeah, you can hammer that number down maybe towards the 200 number. But like the tiny houses that we build, those are so small. Those are like 500 to to $1,000 a square foot. So like it's like this, this matrix of that, that that's moving based on square footages. Yeah. It's, it's really hard to take numbers out too. Like just the way people bid homes and stuff too, if they bid it once they're annoyed if they have to bid it again. Yes. So like you're not going to get a one for one deduction. If you start pulling stuff out and, and rebid it, they're like, Oh, this is a headache client now, you know, and I'm, I, if I get this job, I want to make sure I make my money on it. So like, yeah, I would definitely recommend designing under what you think you need than over. 
Um, and there's no magic button to pull out 50 yeah. grand from a house. Like you need to pull out a hundred to five hundred dollars on every line item down the sworn. Um, and that's really hard to do and really tedious. So you might as well start, yeah, square footage is the best way. <laughs> start smaller and build up from there. And yeah, yeah, and really, really think about your space. Goodness, I don't know how many times I've had this conversation um, with folks uh, that do you really need a uh, 20 foot by 30 foot master bedroom? Like how much time are you spending in there? One of the internal documents that we've been working on uh, lately is uh, one of our senior staff put together is a matrix that lists out the square footages of each of your rooms on average. And then cross-checked with that is how much time you're spending in each of those spaces. And lo and behold, where does everybody spend most of their time? Kitchen, then probably living room, then honestly, um, then maybe dining room. And then bedrooms are always at the lowest end of this thing. So mm-hmm. there's you just really, really need to think about where am I spending my time? What is worth spending my my time and money? What is worth spending my money on based on where I spend my time? Mm-hmm. And then kind of one other thing you, you mentioned I want to touch back on is the uh, contractors getting annoyed and kind of maybe not refusing to do a, a counter bid. Uh, this was a giant topic that I was I was going to talk with Alex today about, but I, I'm happy to talk about it with you, Adam, is uh, I don't know if you're seeing it, but uh, especially residential contractors, and that is uh, charging a fee to even bid on the project. That's where we're at in life now. Wow. And that's where the market is at. And uh, so if you're an owner out there listening or anybody who's thinking about building or you're even on the opposite side of that and you're starting to see contractors starting to charge an upfront fee, that also if you win the contract, it obviously gets rolled into your overall GC fee because you're, you're doing that work. Um, you would have had to do that work anyway. Um, I, I, I think it's the right thing to do at this point in the industry. Um, from an owner standpoint, if you are bulking at like, let's say they charge $5,000 to, to bid out your house, uh, understand that that is going to give them a, another level of commitment to you, right? So everybody has skin in the game at that point and every, nobody feels like they're getting cheated. Nobody, and the, I don't think those contractors are going to do a, a, a half-assed job about getting you mm-hmm. a, a quality yeah. bid put together. Uh, some architects in, so this is in the Entree architect community. There was this giant discussion this week about, about all of this and lo and behold, like, I don't know how to understand how these architects don't understand how both hands talk to each other. What I'm getting at is like all day long, they complain about, uh, uh, getting paid less than the contractors and the contractors are controlling, end up controlling the process. And why are we making money like the contractors are? But then at the same time, they're bulking at the idea that these contractors, including me, are now charging an upfront fee to even bid. And it's like, maybe that's why. Maybe maybe that's why. that They're willing to, right at the beginning, put a stake and just a line in the sand and say, I am not working for free. And then you have a bunch of other architects and designers going, eh, I'll, I'll work for free because I need the work or I'm trying to earn more work um, and, and get things off the ground. Yeah. Yeah, that's a great point. I am... Um... So in my design, back to the budgeting question, like I'm a really big fan of roping the builder in early. I, mm-hmm. I'm not a fan of the system of hire architect to draw plans, get everything detailed out, and then let's send it to five to 10 builders and see what our numbers come back at. 
I just don't think you're going to get the best project because you don't know what you're looking at with numbers. The builders are annoyed because they can sense that you're talking to five to 10 other builders. And to your point, if they're <laughs> charging fees to bid the house, you really want to be selective about who you're sending yeah. that to. Um, so in most of my projects, I strongly encourage my client, if they if they came to me first, I say, hey, let's let's talk to builders. Let's get it in front of them because I want to send that very first schematic over to the builder and say, hey, the client is thinking their budget is X. This is what I'm drawing for them. Are we close? Are we in the ballpark? Do you have any suggestions? And a lot of my builders are really creative and have great ideas. Like, I don't want to be the person that is like cutting them off, you know, and not because they're going to, they're going to give their input on the project either way. Right. Yeah. Whether you finish it or you work with them through it, they're going to start talking to the client and maybe want you to change the plan even after you're done. So I don't know. Do you, what kind of feedback are they giving you? Are they telling you what I just said about the square footage or is it different stuff? I mean, I'm curious about this because I'll, I'll tell just maybe before uh, you answer. Are you talking like price per square foot? Yeah, yeah. Like is that, what is the, I, I would love to hear what are the, maybe the top three things they tell you to save money because I'll tell you there's only one thing they ever tell me. Reduce the square footage. Reduce the square footage. Interesting. Yeah, I'm, I was, as a home designer, I was trained by a builder. So mm-hmm. most of my home designs are very builder friendly. So I don't get too, too many comments of, oh, the spans here are X and we have to switch to this joy system. So that makes this exponentially more expensive than if you did this, this, and this. Like, I feel like I've got a lot of that stuff covered in my design. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I, I would say overall, they're looking at square footage. Sometimes it's, it's bump outs and things. Um, you know, if you cleaned up this section here, there's a lot going on and it's causing the roof line to have these extra valleys and things that, you know, compiling costs and, and things like that. But yeah, I, I would agree. They're really looking at that square footage number now. Yeah, yeah. But okay, interesting. I mean, I don't know what else you can do with like obviously finishes. One one of the th- uh, you know, uh, I guess to point to one example recently was I put a I put a line item in for a custom house that we're bidding on up and we designed it. It's one of these flips up in the mountains. It's super modern. It's two hours away. Nobody wants to go up there, uh, but uh, we're we're tr- we're doing it anyway. And so uh, I put a line item in for their um, fireplace. 25,000. And this is a, you know, one of these custom floor to ceiling. The ceilings are like 18 feet tall. So it's a lot of tile. Tile's expensive. There's a mantle. A mantle's expensive. Fireplace, plot, the gas, the whole thing is, is very expensive. And I said, you guys don't have to do this. You guys can just, that's a line item we can just get rid of entirely. Like you can, you could always put that in later. We can just stub a gas line in. Um, the, another one was maybe the kitchen. Kitchens, as everybody should know, is there is a bottom level, but there's no upper level. Yeah. Right? right? I mean, you can go, you could go nuts. You could spend $10,000 on a fridge. You could spend $15,000 mm. on a range. And so you could just keep adding and adding and adding. You could do like very uh, exotic materials, countertops, um, special uh, counter uh, cabinets that, you know, open and close automatically. I mean, it just goes up and I go and I, for the, so for these clients, I said, look, this is a baseline, sort of a middle number, 20 grand, but I would encourage you honestly to consider something like, do we need to go to Ikea? Are you guys yeah. assembling the cabinets yourselves? Um, stuff like that to, to reduce things. So there is also a finish, I think besides square footages, I would say if, if there was for me a one, two, three, it would be 
square footage is. Let's reduce as much as we can. Design the most efficient space as possible, size-wise. Number two, are there line items we can just get rid of that you can build later that you can live with? Because uh, we even did that with my house. You know, I didn't have a mantle on my uh, fireplace until last year. And we built mm-hmm. our house in 2015, 2016. You know, can you, can you just eliminate stuff and live with a little bit more bare minimum just get you in the house, save up some more money, tackle that. And then number three is reducing from high-end finishes to maybe mid or lower grade. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of savings that can be had there. Mm-hmm. Um, I wanted to, I think we'll do like one last topic here. And this is something that I don't talk about much, but I, I'm really curious your opinion on. And sure. I think it'd be fun to discuss just given our backgrounds. And I... I post on TikTok a lot and I always get this question like, are you a licensed architect? Mm. What do you do? Um, Are you even allowed to draw? Just all this stuff. And so I usually answer, you know, I have a degree in engineering and yada, yada, yada. And that usually suffices. But the point being like, if someone were senior in high school, wanted to get into home design, you know, do you recommend the path? How has that served your career in becoming a fully licensed architect? The benefits are there other routes? You know, I'm curious your thoughts. If you if you knew at 18 that you just wanted to do houses, I would I wouldn't go to architecture school. I would do one of two things. I would either pound the pavement and get on the horn, the phone, and call as many builders or developers, or uh, even maybe some architecture firms and just say, I am looking to get in, I'll intern and start at the very, very bottom level and, and, and get going. There's a lot of really good online courses at this point to be able for, you, for you to teach, teach you CAD, teach you Revit, teach you ArchiCAD, any kind of those platforms, Vectorworks. Uh, Lynda.com is a good one, right? And then I already plugged ours, yeah. but... Um, I think that's one way. Uh, you don't need a license to practice residential architecture in most jurisdictions, and rightly so. Uh, rightly so, because there's a very low occupant load. Um, you're already going to have to jump through all the code hoops and make sure that you're compliant. There's going to be multiple cross checks at the building department, at the in the field with the building officials, um, all of that kind of stuff. Even the builder is probably going to have some input on what you can mm-hmm. and cannot do, and they're going to give you some standards or best practices. And then the other one would be a tech school. If you do just, if you're just like, I, I got to at least have an associate's degree. There's still a lot of drafting uh, opportunities out there for you to go to just a two-year tech school, architectural drafting, estimating. And uh, be, again, because of the labor shortage and the people not willing to work because we're just handing out checks to people, I think there's a huge opportunity for you for you to get in. If you have any sense of work, work ethic at this point in 2021 and a and you want to work, and you value work, and it means something to you personally, I don't think you're going to have any problems getting into the industry at all. This is a really a golden time, I think, to start all kinds of different careers, despite all the doom and gloom you see from the corporate press. So yeah. uh, that would be my advice. And and then, but, but there's a caveat to all this. So we work with two ladies down in Denver. They're wonderful. They bring us a lot of work. They are unlicensed architects. Um, I know you're not even supposed to say that, but like I, I don't, I don't really care. So yeah. unlicensed architects, they're they both have degrees in environmental design, and so um, from different universities, and they uh, 
it's basically everything you need to know to be an architect education wise minus they didn't go to grad school to go get the professional degree and then to get licensed. So they'll never be licensed. You, you are going to be hamstrung a little bit with the kind of the questions you get, Adam, but it sounds like you have a really good answer back already. So you're just going to have to figure out what that answer is back to the general public, to potential clients, to builders. And if it was me, and this is what we did when we were unlicensed and we were just doing houses before we got into commercial, it was, I went and looked up what an unlicensed designer can or cannot do in Colorado. And I memorized what they can do per the state codes. Because you should understand, and I don't mean you, Adam, but I mean the audience, you should understand if you're listening to this and you want to go that route, that uh, you need to be prepared with some kind of answer. And then um, that the general public truly thinks still somehow, I don't know how, they think you have to be a licensed architect to do residential or like, or that is meaningful in some way. Um, I think it's meaningful in the commercial institutional realm, obviously, because that's a whole different level of occupant yeah. loads. And you're, there's so many more people and lives that, that you affect just, just volume wise, just volume wise, you know, not, not time wise. Like if we talked about earlier where you're spending more time in your house. Um, so be, 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 just be prepared with, with that sort of thing. And, and I think you'll be, you'll be in good shape. And then the other thing too, is like, there are a lot more jurisdictions though, that are requiring licensed architects to do houses. So your window is closing on that. Um, so you just got to be aware. I think your window is, is closing in a sense in some places, but it's in very highly populated places like Denver, Boulder, the coasts, those sort of things where they're really starting to clamp down on, they need licensed architects. And at some point, I don't know if we're ever going to be able to deregulate. I mean, once a law is passed, it never gets unrepealed hardly, right? I mean, there's yeah. only a few times in like history that it's even happened. But I would, I wouldn't, you know. So um, that's kind of like that's how I would tackle all all of those things. Don't don't be intimidated. Just arm yourself with the right information. Yeah, it's it's an interesting spot for me in my career because there's there's a portion of architects that will think and say only architects should ever be the ones to design anything mm -hmm. that's built anywhere ever. Mm -hmm. And obviously by my career choices, I, I don't agree, you know? Um, so, but I, I feel like because I have an engineering background, so I, I did an emphasis in structures. So basically, um, yeah, the steel and concrete design and all that stuff in school, which is, which is fun. It, it doesn't relate really. and doesn't help because I'm not, designing in that level and that and I haven't ever really practiced engineering so sorry blabbing but I feel like I have this like standing room only ticket to the architecture school because not architecture school but like the architecture community because I I am around it enough our jobs are kind of similar but I didn't get that degree and I don't have a license so I can never really fully participate in the discussion mm -hmm. but so like it's it's a weird place to be. Um, mm -hmm. I'm I'm really 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 thankful though that I because um, I was debating on whether or not I even wanted to do engineering in school. I'm really mm -hmm. thankful I stuck it out because I always have that to fall back on as yeah. from a conversation point. Um, so yeah, I, I think that helps a ton. But to your point, Lance, like if you didn't have a degree in anything, your portfolio is what matters, and your yeah. relationship with 
Um, like if you get a good relationship with a builder, like we're talking about, and they, they trust you to make a plan, nobody's going to care. <laughs> it's, yep. it's surprising how few people care. And I've even said this on podcasts before. There's some of my clients that appreciate that I'm not an architect. Um, yeah. Because yeah, there's exactly, yeah. I think that's a great point, Adam, is like, think about the opportunities that are out there for people who honestly don't want the architect. They don't, again, they don't want that attitude there. And there is a very, very big attitude that is prevalent in the architects. Exactly. It's, it's like an entitlement um, with that, with that, you know, putting three letters behind your name and getting the license and all that. And they think we are exactly, I'm, I'm a hundred percent with you with that. So it's just like anything. There's always a double sword. There's a, always a double edged sword with everybody, personality, professional wise, and then just the general public. So there's got to be some openings for people to work within. Yeah. Uh, the last thing I would say though is, and you touched on this a little bit, is there is a ceiling to what I can design. Mm-hmm. Um, like you said, some some states I can't touch. Like if I get a project recommendation in, Cal- in California, it's just like, sorry, I, I yeah. can't. <laughs> you know, I'm not even going to try. Um, so there's that. And then the commercial side, you know, you get asked and it, it'd be nice. I have some relationships now with local architects where, they trust me and I've, I've done some drafting for them, which is cool. But you still, if, you, if you're undecided and you're not sure if you want to do commercial or residential, like there's no way to get around the stamp. Um, yeah. And there's no way to replace that. Relationships and stuff help. And I'm not, I'm not sad about the point my career is in. And I, I don't think that's really hurt me. But if you're looking to get into this, I would definitely consider that. Yeah. Again, it points back to the mentorship. So when we were on license, we just identified and found a couple mentors. They were licensed architects. And we just told them the truth. We said, look, we're just doing residential stuff. But every once in a while, we do get a, somebody who just contacts us through another contact. And they want to do something where we can't perform it legally. Would, would you be okay with partnering? And we're happy to be a subcontractor basically underneath you. You oversee the work. We'll still perform most of the work on, under your guidance that's sort of the workaround to do it. It keeps everything legal and kosher. And mm. at the same time, um, in some cases, you know, like Colorado, did you, did you finish your uh, civil, en- it was civil engineering, right, Adam? Uh, my degree. Yeah. 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 If you, exactly. So in some states, and again, this is all comes back to you, the audience, looking up what you can and cannot do. If you were a, 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 an engineer, uh, by by education wise, trade wise, doesn't matter which which one it is. In Colorado, you can still become an architect. Um, so don't don't sell yourself short. The requirements on hours under that you need to perform under a licensed architect are much different. It's like three times as much hours, but you can still get there. So that like understand your path to licensure. And a lot of these states, it seems like uh, I would I would never count California as a Western state at this point. It's a whole other country. But like <laughs> in the Rocky yeah. Mountain region or like the Midwest where it's still a little bit rural, they're flexible with that kind of stuff and they can make that happen um, for you. If you if you if you're playing the long game, um, think about this long game is if you were the 18 year old, uh, if you were the 18 year old person or, or whatever, or even if you were somebody who, like, again, who got this uh, degree, uh, some kind of our engineering degree, if you're playing the long game. And you're thinking about like, look, I love what I do and I'm okay with doing those extra hours under a licensed architect. I can still get there. So there's still paths to maneuver, you know, in, in, in roads, inroads you can make 
yeah. um, to get there. So you just got to really dig into it. Yeah. Good stuff, Lance. Um, yeah. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I think we're going to wrap up here, but any final thoughts or comments before we get rolling? Uh, final comments would be uh, just get after it. Um, kind of echoing on what I, what I spoke about earlier about if you have any semblance of work ethic right now and you're available and you're, and you're willing and you're ready and you have your head on your shoulders and, you're, and your head is straight, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity out there in so many different categories, not just architecture, design, anything like that, even the building trades. My goodness, we have such a shortage of quality people in the building trade, trades, um, all different kinds of subs. It doesn't matter which ones they are. If you are, if you are willing to put in the effort and the work and get after it and play the long game, um, the world is still your oyster. I still oh, believe the yeah. American dream is alive and well. It's just maybe you need to make a few sacrifices on your own. Stop buying the Starbucks every day. Start buying a can of Folgers and making your own coffee. Um, stuff like that, you know. Yes, uh, your dollar isn't worth as much as it used to used to be. Every single day, they keep printing more money and stuff like that. But um, just get some. And then, and then, if there's any myths that you have in your head, one thing that I see often about people is like just buying their first house, and they're like, "I don't have that kind of money." Well, do you even know what it takes to buy your first house? And they go, well, yeah, like 25% down. No, not at all. There's there's opportunities out there. If you just went out and actually talked to somebody, a realtor, somebody in finance, just put yourself out there, pull the Band-Aid off, rip it off, and ask them and just tell them the truth and say, look, here's where I'm at. I'm only making you know X dollars per year. It's I, need, I really want to get into a house. Um, how do we get there? There's programs where you put 0% down. Yeah. So, all the inroads are still there in society. Just shut off the corporate press, get out of that doom and gloom, and start being optimistic. Yeah. Totally. Get out there, do stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Get <laughs> awesome, Lance. Well, thanks. You have an awesome weekend, and I'm sure we will talk soon. Sounds good, buddy. See ya. <laughs>